We're in Revelation chapter 20. This is just, this is a lot of fun. So this is just a great chapter. Why don't we uh, pray and we'll get into it. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. And truly, there's so much to look forward to. God, we, we have great anticipation for what you're going to do in the millennial kingdom. And God, not, certainly not at the expense of what we have today, what we have right now. As Sam was leading us in that song, just that you're more than enough, you're more than sufficient. Our cup is not just full, it's overflowing. And we want to thank you for that. And, and then in addition to that, because it is grace upon grace, it is blessing upon blessing, it is just total overflow Father, we have this beautiful future that you've, you've allowed us as we've put our faith in Jesus to be a part of. Who are we? God, we have done nothing to earn it. You've been so good. And I do pray tonight that you would just fill our hearts with a, a joy as we look forward to what is coming. And I pray, God, that 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 joy would not only bless us in this moment, but we also would just be so strongly compelled to worship you, and that we also, God, would be compelled to witness, to be a light, God, to not just want to hoard the blessings of God to ourselves, but to sincerely desire that, that others would share in the joy as well. And so, God, bless us, we pray, by the teaching of your Holy Spirit tonight as we open your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this really is, uh, it's, it's fascinating. You know, it's only 15 verses in this 20th chapter, uh, but there's so much happens just from a chronological point of view, uh, just between verses 4 and 6, we're talking about a thousand years of time passing, and we'll talk about what this millennium really means, because there are some different views on it. Uh, but this is a, a chapter that contains a thousand years of uh, ruling and reigning of Jesus Christ, and it's all condensed in this very, very short portion in the book of Revelation. And yet, as I say that, I'm sure you know that this idea of the messianic kingdom or we call it the millennial kingdom um, or you know if you're familiar with the old testament and uh, the anticipation of the jewish people we're talking about the golden age that they were looking forward to i mean this this was heavy on the hearts of every jewish person because there's so much information contained in the old testament about it uh, you know, I want to just remind us that our God is a God of restoration. This is the heart of God. He loves to restore. He can take what has been damaged by the curse, and he can make it absolutely brand new. And, of course, that's what we see him do in chapter 20, in chapter 21, in chapter 22. God is not just abandoning the earth. He is going to renew it and restore it. And tonight, what we're going to have the opportunity to uh, to do is we're going to look at the consummation of the redemption story. And I've, I've mentioned this to you already that this was really important to the Jewish mind. And so for those of us Gentiles, you know, we read chapter 20 and we, we uh, get a couple of verses, especially if we're not familiar with our Old Testament. And, and uh, we have a picture of what we think this uh, millennial kingdom is going to look like. But in the Jewish mind, man, there just was so much that they had been anticipating over so many centuries 
Uh, and this chapter really did represent and does represent the, the fulfillment of it. Uh, th there's been seven years of tribulation that we've walked through from chapter 6 to chapter 19. And from the perspective, the dispensational perspective of God working uh, in the nation of Israel and fulfilling his covenant promises because you know that God is not done with Israel. He'll be faithful to fulfill every promise that he's given to those people. And yes, in a, in a national sense, but the tribulation, one purpose of the tribulation is to prepare them. God is preparing uh, the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, for this beautiful messianic kingdom that their hearts have been longing for all along. You know, when we look at the gospel accounts and we consider the first coming of Jesus Christ, we talk about, and rightly so, the kingdom of God coming into the hearts and minds of men and women. You know, this was... This was how he initially began his ministry uh, and his preaching ministry by saying, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so, you know, in the Jewish mind, of course, they were looking for their messianic king. They were looking for the institution of a messianic kingdom. And in his first coming, he brought that kingdom into the hearts and minds of those who were willing to believe in his second coming, he is going to bring a physical kingdom on the face of planet Earth. And when we talk about uh, the Messiah or Jesus being the son of David, this is really, this is really the, the point of that, that title. It was looking forward to him sitting on an eternal throne that had been initiated by David so many centuries before but ultimately, all of that was a foreshadowing. It was a prefiguring of the one, the ultimate king that would come. And then not only that, but you know, we, uh, in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we walked through the, the very difficult moment in heaven where God is sitting on his throne and he has in his right hand that scroll and no one is worthy in heaven, no one can be found who is worthy to open the scroll. And then, of course, John is weeping convulsively, and the angel settles his heart. And then, remember, he draws his attention to the lion of the tribe of Judah, um, the root of David. And so, Jesus takes the scroll, unrolls it, and, of course, you know, we've seen over the last number of chapters, seal judgments and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments um, but that wasn't the end of the story with the scroll. Now that those judgments have been complete, that authority to, to take and to rule over uh, the earth has been achieved by Christ. He's the only one that was able to do it. And now he is entering into that beautiful, glorious kingdom where he will sit on his throne, centered in the city of Jerusalem, and of course, all of that coming after, he is coming in the clouds with his saints uh, to establish his kingdom. And so, I just want to give you a little bit of a preface, you know, that, that we're going to talk more about the Old Testament and how the Old Testament was looking into this millennial moment. Um, but remember, just from a Jewish perspective, and I'll, I'll just be honest with you, man, I go back on my notes when I taught this previously, and sometimes it's always bad for a teacher to listen to previous messages or to read previ previous notes because it's like, oh man, that was just bad. That was bad and there's so much missing and there's so much more that could have been done. And uh, that for sure was the case for me when I looked back on my notes from this last time I taught this. So hopefully it's better this time. 
The Bible says in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon. You say, well, who's the dragon? Well, it's a good question. The Bible tells us that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for how long? For a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit. And this is one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. And shut him up. Man, that's just good. Jesus just shut him up, right? And I'll take a little bit of that right now as well. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So let me just, let me just connect you back to chapter 19. I did, a little, I did it a little bit. But remember, second coming, he's coming with the clouds. He's coming with the multitude of his saints. He's riding on a white horse. We are riding with him also. He comes, most likely this is the arrangement of his coming. He sets down in Edom, rescues those Jews who have been safely protected by God for three and a half years from, you know, that, um, you know, the violent pursuit of the Antichrist. He rescues them. He proceeds to the Valley of Jezreel, uh, the area that we would call uh, the Valley of Megiddo, uh, where the Battle of Armageddon takes place. And of course, all of the nations of the world, all of their armies are gathered there. This goes from Mount Carmel all the way down to the Valley of Decision or Jehoshaphat's Valley, which is some people think the Kidron Valley. So we're talking about tens of thousands and some would even say millions of soldiers with all of their artillery are gathered there. And then as we're reading chapter 19, we see it's just a very simple victory for Jesus Uh, The sword goes out of his mouth, and uh, all of those armies are destroyed. The Antichrist and the false prophet are captured, and they are cast, the first ones to be cast into the lake of fire that is burning with brimstone. From my point of view, uh, that is the literal hell. Hell is to be distinguished from Hades, and we're going to talk about Hades in a little bit. Hades is a holding place uh, for all of those souls that were half of it, Abraham's bosom, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and being faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the other side set aside as a place of judgment and torment for those who rejected the testimony that was given to them. We're going to talk about what happens uh, to both of those compartments in Hades in just a little bit. And now, of course, you know, the The Antichrist has been dealt with, the false prophet has been dealt with, but you're thinking, well, there's a counterfeit trinity, and so there's Satan as well. What happens to him? And that's where we pick up in verse 1. There's an angel. Um, The angel's not named. The angel's not described. I mean, there's been so much that's gone into just the glorious description of angels. For instance, in chapter 19, you know, we were introduced to an angel that was literally standing in the sun, 93 million miles away, 10,000 Kelvin. That's a pretty killer angel from my point of view. This is just an angel. This is just an ordinary run-of-the-mill angel. It's almost like, it's almost like God is conveying the insignificance of the devil by just picking you know, a, a normal angel out of the millions of angels to, to do this deal, and then also expressing that there's no one greater than God. There's no one greater than God. You know, sometimes, 
And I'm not saying that we should be unaware of the wiles of the adversary. I'm certainly not saying tonight that we should not be um, unaware of the, the battle that we're engaged in. But, you know, sometimes we give the devil too much authority. We give the devil too much power. Um, we almost can treat him as if he is the equal but opposite of Jesus. And that certainly is not the case. This is just an ev everyday run-of-the-mill angel that comes, comes down from heaven. He has the key to the bottomless pit and a chain in his hand. He takes a hold, you know, like by the, it's not by the scruff of his neck, but you know, it's almost like you get that picture. It's the way I see it anyway. And just to make sure that we understand who we're talking about, John uses every name that has been given for the adversary in the book of Revelation. So we've talked about him in this book as the dragon, as the serpent of old, as the devil, and as Satan. Takes him by the scruff of the neck, connects him to that chain, and binds him for what I believe to be a literal thousand years. He shuts him up and sets a seal. So there's no escaping, there's no bargaining his way out of this situation. You know, he's not gonna, he's not gonna be able to get out through a window or a crack or a seam. I mean, he is, it's the judgment of God, it's the purpose of God. So he is contained in this place, this bottomless pit, which is most likely in the center of the earth for a thousand years. And then there's this crazy phrase at the end of verse three that says, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. I want to remind you, you know, obviously right now, uh, we see that we live in a world that is full of conflict. It's full of war. It's full of victimization, right? It's full of suffering. It's full, full of sorrow. It's full of sickness. You say, well, why is that the case? Well, part of the reason why is because Satan is ruling right now. And his rule is going to come to an end. You say, well, is he ruling in the sense that, that God can't do anything about what he does? And, of course, the answer is no, because our God is a sovereign God. We're going to talk about that on Sunday morning. I hope that you can make it. Of course, God is he, sovereign simply means that God rules and reigns over all things. There is nothing that is outside of the dominion of God, right? Even the adversary, even the devil, and yet we see in this world that truly he is, Satan is, for a period of time, ruling. And the Bible makes that clear. The Bible calls him the prince of the world. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5 that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And the word sway, it's a really interesting Greek phrase. It means to move rhythmically. And so the idea is like, you know, a hand making something move from right to left and left to right. And that's what's happening today. You say, man, pastor, I just, it's been so hard for me at work. I feel like a salmon swimming upstream. You know, in this life, I don't know what it is, but I feel like every day, you know, like I'm pressing against something. It's almost as if there's this, there's this oppressive force that fights against me. Well, of course, of course it feels like that because that's the case. You're a child of God. You're a son or a daughter of light. You belong to Jesus. You, you, you're dwelling in the kingdom of God and you're fighting in this world against the adversary and the, 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 you know, the, 
millions of minions or demons that he has that are arrayed against you. But you know what? The battle belongs to the Lord. And there's no weapon that's been fashioned against you that will prosper because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And that's good news tonight. So let me, let me just say, because, you know, uh, there are times, there are times where I've taught over the last 20 years and someone, you know, sits in the, sits in the service, you know, 14 years for the last 14 years here. And um, inevitably I hear someone say, well, I never heard that before. And I'm like, what, what, what are you talking about, man? I taught that so many times. And so I don't want you walking away tonight thinking that you never heard about all the different Ideas concerning uh, the millennial kingdom, because there are three uh, pr prominent views about the millennial kingdom, this 1,000-year period of time. And so I want to make sure that you understand what they are. There are some people who call themselves all-millennialists, all-millennialists, and that simply means that they don't believe there is a millennium. They don't believe there's a literal 1,000-year period of time. Uh, Roman Catholics fall into this category, the Episcopal Church falls into this category, and many Reformed traditions fall into this category as well. They think that this chapter is really referring to a symbolic period of time uh, where the gospel will be preached and Satan's power will be curbed by the triumph of the gospel. And so they read this and they don't take this in literal terms, they take this in figurative terms and they say, well, no, this is really just, a, this is just a, a time where the gospel is triumphing and Satan's power is being curbed. That's all millennialism. There are some people who are post-millennialists. They believe in a literal thousand-year period of time um, that actually precedes the second coming. They don't believe it comes after the second coming. They believe it precedes the second coming. And so, from their point of view, there is a 1,000-year period of time, and let me just say that some post-millennialists uh, don't believe in a literal 1,000 years. They just believe it's, you know, figuratively speaking about a period of time, but they think, or they would say, their theology says that that period of time before the second coming is a time where the gospel is going to triumph. Now, listen, for, for both of those uh, viewpoints, uh, and especially post-millennialism, I do think that the next major event that's going to happen from a prophetic point of view is the rapture of the church. And then quickly on the heels of that, seven years later, will be the second coming. And I would just say that, that I have not seen a thousand years where the gospel has triumphed in a global sense. I'm not saying that there aren't places, right, localized places, and sometimes localized in the sense of a whole nation being impacted by the gospel. But I have yet to see from church history or secular history uh, an extended period of time where the gospel truly has triumphed in the sense that they would say that it would. And then there are premillennialists. You know, this is the category or the camp that uh, I fall in. We believe in a literal 1,000-year period of time that will come immediately after the second coming of Christ to this earth. Um, and I would say, for, for, I believe this for many, many reasons, but one simple reason is this. As we go all the way through chapter 20, you're going to just notice the way 
that the Bible talks about this thousand-year period of time. Um, even saying things like in verse 7, now when the thousand years have expired. So, I mean, it really does. Remember, we try to keep a very simple, literal approach to the interpretation of Scripture unless the text itself gives credence to what we're reading uh, as a metaphor as, or as a simile or something like that. And that certainly doesn't seem to be the case in chapter 20. Um, and then in addition to that, as we look at all the events rolled out in chapter 20, and if we were to say, well, we're going to take the millennial period of time figuratively or symbolically, um, I would say, well, then what hinders us from taking the great white throne of judgment, which is in the same chapter, figuratively or symbolically as well. It's almost as if once you go down that road, you can pick or choose what is allegorical or metaphorical based on you know, your systematic theology. And so, so we're going to approach this from a premillennial point of view. There you have it. You heard it. Don't say you never heard it. All right? Don't say you never heard it. So check out what it says about this thousand-year period of time. And I saw thrones... And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Let me just stop there real quick and, and say this. So John is looking, right, he's looking forward uh, he sees from a prophetic standpoint the, the devil cast into the bottomless pit, sealed so that he cannot deceive the nations anymore. And then he sees thrones that are set up. And, and one group of people that are sitting on these thrones are tribulation saints, right? I mean, that's clear from the context here. We're talking about those people who put their trust and faith in Christ, the Revelation chapter 12 group, uh, and then other chapters as well talked about these individuals, the same group as they were martyred. Remember, they were underneath the altar. They were looking to God to bring that moment of vengeance and to recompense those who had shed the blood of the saints. It's that group of people. Well, now they've been exalted, and they are in a position with Christ where they're sitting on thrones, and they are ruling and reigning and administrating with him for a thousand years. Verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. We'll talk about that in just a second. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with them a thousand years. And so the second group that we see ruling and reigning with Christ, in addition to the tribulation saints, are all of those who have put their trust and faith in Messiah preceding the incarnation, uh, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and then all of those who have believed in him after that as well who were either resurrected uh, at the rapture of the church um, or, like I said, for this other group, tribulation saints, who were resurrected at the second coming of Jesus. And so, so listen, there it is. That's a thousand years in verses four to six. And I think if, if we're not careful, what we fail to do is to consider just the, the beauty of this moment from the perspective 
of a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, messianic Jewish person. I mean, because it's spectacular. You know, if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, let me just say this. There are, some people have said, 747 references to the millennial kingdom in the Old and New Testament, predominantly in the Old Testament. And this moment, right, we just have this little tiny snapshot of it, um, but there is a huge collage of imagery about this particular period of time, especially in the, in the prophets and in the Psalms of the Old Testament. And it is all initiated with the judgment of nations. So I mentioned to you that Christ comes back, my view, Edom first, Valley of Jezreel. He ascends to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is split in two, Zechariah chapter 14. There's a great valley that is made. There's a gush of water that comes forth. One part heads through the city of Jerusalem. The other part goes down uh, the Jordan Valley, the Jordan Rift Valley. And then it causes, I talked about this last week, it causes the Dead Sea to be teeming with life. Jesus goes into the city of Jerusalem. He sets himself up as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. And then in that moment, the Bible says he is going to judge the nations. So not to get ahead of myself, but remember, three judgments in the New Testament. There's the judgment seat of Christ, there's the judgment seat of, uh, there's the judgment of the nations, and then there's the great white throne of judgment. That is the chronology of them. But this particular moment was spoken of by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. I'm going to read some verses to you. You can turn there if you want to, but I do want to remind you, like if you want to get a good perspective of what happens in the tribulation period, and then at the inception of the millennial kingdom from the mouth of Christ, Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25. And so at the very beginning of the millennial kingdom, this is what happens. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Huge fulfillment from the Jewish perspective. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those, who's the king? The king is who? Right. Say it like you mean it. Thank you. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So, So from the words of Christ, listen, this is what's going to happen. He is going to judge the nations. All people from all nations will come before him. There will be in some sense a procession, and then he is going to separate them. He is going to, from my point of view, based on what he says here, he is going to separate them based on how they handled the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. And there are some who will be able to enter into this glorious golden age, this millennial kingdom, where the greatest ruler of time and eternity is going to benevolently rule over the earth, uh, and then the others will be set aside for judgment and justice. 
Some people say to me, well, Pastor, who, how is it that the earth is repopulated during the millennial kingdom? I mean, like, who do you start with? Is it that uh, you start with believing people and that's how the earth is repopulated? And of course, that's not the case because all believers at this point in time are going to be in their resurrected form. So the earth is going to be repopulated with those who make it through the judgment of the nations. Like I said, probably based on the, how they handled the nation of Israel. But let me just tell you what the Old Testament, how the Old Testament describes this thousand year period of time. And I hope it fills your heart with some sense of anticipation. The Bible says that the Messiah is going to rule Zechariah says that the king, and we're talking about Jesus the king, will rule over the whole earth. Isaiah says that the government and all governments will be on his shoulders, uh, that he will sit on the throne of David. Daniel says that he is going to be the stone that destroys all other nations and becomes a great mountain that fills all the earth. The Bible says that there will be no deception and no temptation. We know that because we've just read that the devil is going to be cast into the bottomless pit. It's going to be a time where the adversary is not going to be tempting. He's not going to be enticing. His uh, demonic uh, army is not going to be doing the same either. It's just going to be a moment to see how the heart of humanity will respond to uh, the, the authority and the leadership and the rule of Jesus. The Bible says it's going to be a time that's filled with righteousness. The book of Psalms and the book of Revelation say that Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. It's going to be a time of peace. Micah says there'll be no war. Isaiah says instruments of war will be transformed into implements of agriculture. The Bible says that Egypt, Assyria, and the Jewish people will be allies. And you know that Egypt and Assyria were always presented to and were literally adversaries of the Jews. The Bible says that the conflict of the curse will be re reversed. Isaiah says the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Not the lion and the lamb, but the wolf and the lamb, sorry. The nursing child will play outside of the cobra's hole. The Bible says uh, physical suffering from the curse will cease. Uh, Isaiah, in fact, says that this time will be a time of healing, uh, that there will be an extension to the life of humanity, that someone who dies at 100 years old, it'll be considered a sad, sad thing. Um, and then in addition to that, the Bible says that uh, it'll be a time where people will know God the scripture says that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the whole earth. And Micah teaches us that the nations, all nations will come to worship God in the city of Jerusalem. So listen, I don't know, I read that. I studied that and I'm like, man, I can't wait. It's just going to be so good. I don't know what you're looking forward to in your life, but that for sure, if you're a believer in Jesus, is something good to look forward to. And let me just say this, you know, that all of that is not going to come in this lifetime until Christ himself comes back. Like if you're really looking to some political institution or a political leader to institute some type of utopia, I'm sorry, but your, your hopes are always going to be dashed. I'm not saying that we don't pray for good, godly, solid leadership that can bring the peace of God. But when we talk about a global experience of God's peace or developing some sense of utopia by a form or a fashion of political uh, 
science, you know, a form of government, it's, it's never going to happen in this lifetime until Jesus Christ comes back. There were thrones that were committed uh, to those to judge upon, and of course, like I said, uh, some of those people will be martyrs from the great tribulation, and then others will be like you and me. In fact, one of the promises from uh, the book of Revelation to the church at Thyatira was this, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, as I also have received from my Father. So, like I'd mentioned to you, uh, we're going to see that not only do tribulation saints rule and reign, but also resurrected saints rule and reign, and this is the first resurrection. You know, the scripture here identifies the resurrection really in two different ways. There's the first resurrection, and then we're going to see in just a minute the second resurrection. You say, well, what is the first resurrection? I just, I, I want to lay out chronologically how the resurrection has, has, has worked, you know, from a biblical perspective. Of course, we know that resurrection to heaven was instituted by Christ himself. Jesus was the first to be resurrected to heaven um, he ascended to heaven. He was the firstborn among many brethren. He was the one who paved the way. He took with him first fruits. So Hades, like I said, has, had two compartments. One was, if you take Luke chapter 16 literally, one was called Abraham's bosom or paradise. And of course, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, you remember one of the thieves, his heart was touched by Christ and his attitude was turned and he went from blaspheming Jesus to saying to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response to him was this, most assuredly I say to you, do you guys remember what he said? Most assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, paradise, from what I see in scripture, is referring to that place called also Abraham's bosom. It was a holding cell for souls uh, that had either been looking forward to the Messiah that God would bring because it was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 um, or it was a place of torment for those who had rejected the testimony of God. And so when Jesus ascended into heaven, remember the Bible says that he who ascended also descended first, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who has ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so this is where we get, you know, the, the, the principle or the idea that he descended down into this place called paradise and then brought up those souls as a first fruit offering to God. So that would be part of the first resurrection. Um, then remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, at the rapture of the church, the Bible says the dead in Christ rise first, and then also um, all of those who are living uh, at the coming of the rapture in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then the last piece of the first resurrection are the tribulation saints. So those who have lived through the tribulation as believers in Christ and who have, have suffered. All of that collectively together in a comprehensive point of view uh, represents the first resurrection. The second resurrection, on the other hand, is a resurrection of souls to the great white throne of judgment. And we're going to get there in just a minute. But let's start in verse 7 and talk about how the millennial kingdom ends. 
The Bible says, no, when the thousand, you guys with me still? Okay. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, before we get into verse 10, like you, gotta, you have to read that and think, what in the world is going on? Like how, how, you know, in our little finite way, we're like little ants compared to the, the majesty of God. And yet still, we read this and we think, why? Why? You know, how, like how does this fit into the divine scheme, the eternal plan, this beautiful picture of God's holy purposes? Uh, and, you know, while I may have some ideas, n- literally none of them are worth sharing with you tonight. I mean... Because frankly, I just don't know. I, I just, God's got a plan here, you know, because, because if it was me, this is never a good thing to say, but let me just say it anyway. If I was God, you know, if I was God, if I was writing the script, if this was my plan, um, that boy would be shut up and, and sealed and settled for destruction, and that would have been the end of the adversary. Like, that would have just been the end of the story. No more. And yet what we see is at the end of this period where Christ will rule and reign in righteousness and total benevolence, everyone's like, hey, you know, I mean, if if we could just have the right ruler, if it could just be the right situation, if there wasn't the adversary or the the enemy, you know, all hearts naturally would, would, would lean into belief and faith because sometimes that's the way we view the human heart. As if, if the circumstances could just be right, we would always make the right decision. And that, of course, is not the case. And we know it's the case. Because here we are in this beautiful millennial kingdom that I just described to you in some detail from the perspective of the Old Testament. And yet, as Satan is released, and as he goes out to deceive the nations, we see that there is an, another army, right? Do, does, do, does humanity ever learn? There's another army that's gathered from the four corners of the earth. It's called Gog and Magog. Now listen, don't confuse this Gog and Magog with the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel chapter 38 and chapter 39. Um, they're not the same thing. We're going to be talking next Thursday about Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. I want to encourage you to come back because everyone right now, you know, with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and by specifically Vladimir Putin, right, every, there are so many people that are viewing this as the fulfillment of, of um, the, the battle of Gog and Magog from Ezekiel. And so is it, is it, is it, is it not? Well, I can't give it away because I'm teaching on it next Thursday, so you have to come back. You'll have to come back. But listen, don't forget, and I'll mention this, like in an archetypical uh, point of view, from an archetypical point of view, Gog and Magog always represented the nations that were adversarial towards Israel, right? And so, so really what we're talking about here um, is from an archetypical point of view, from the Jewish mind, Gog and Magog, we'll talk about this next Thursday, nations that are drawn from the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, um, that have arrayed themselves, not just against Israel, but obviously against Jesus himself. 
And so, so thinking that they can, they can overcome and establish their own kingdom, this is what they do. And then, of course, it is a simple victory once again. I just want to encourage you tonight, don't play tug of war with God. Like, like don't, be in a, don't be in a position where you're adversarial with God. Don't think, you know, somehow, like, you're going to, you've got the upper hand, uh, that you're going to win, you know, that, that somehow you're, you're, you're going to be able to do it your way, and you can say to God, my way or the highway, uh, because God always wins in the end. You know, God always wins in the end, and it is far better for us just to yield and to surrender. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, surrender to his love tonight. Stop fighting against God. Like, like really, just from the perspective of your own well-being, what are you getting out of rejecting God, right? I mean, you're getting misery and dysfunction, and you're living in a prison that you can't release yourself from. You are bound by chains, and the only one who can release you from those chains is the God of heaven and earth. And he's provided a way for you simply through trust and faith in his son. But listen, Christian, I would say to you tonight, don't wrestle against, against God either. Look, we, we wrestle with God, and you know, we're, 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 we're subduing our, our old fleshly nature and bringing it into sub, subjection, into alignment with the will of God, that, that type of wrestling is not bad. This is what we do, right? We're fighting for God's purposes in our lives. You know, we're working through the process of, of making no provision for the flesh and aligning the way we think and what we do with the purposes of God because there's nothing better than his plan for our lives. Even if he's leading you into a storm, you know, even if he's allowing a season of persecution and, and adversity, let me tell you something. It's better to be there than following your own will, right? And, and so let me just say to all of us tonight as Christians, let's make sure we're not fighting against God. Maybe he's been tugging on your heart in some particular way, a step of faith he's calling you to, to make or to take. He's calling you out of the boat. He's calling you to, to walk on the water with him. He's beckoned you to come, right? He's beckoned you to come. He's called you to do something that just, it just doesn't feel comfortable for you. But Peter knew, listen, better to be on the water where it doesn't seem to be safe with Jesus than to be on this boat with the rest of these yahoos. No, I mean, he, I'm not saying he thought that, but, but you know, let's yield to the Lord. And then verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented, listen, day and night. How long? That's not figurative, folks. That is not figurative. Like if, if John's going to use terminology and with the intention of it to be taken metaphorically, he is not going to say it like that. So we're talking about now three characters or figures that have been cast into this eternal place of destruction. And that is the false prophet, the Antichrist, and now finally, once and for all, the angel uh, the, the one who used to be an angel of light, the cherub in the garden of God, who was arrayed with timbrels, you know, possibly this, this character that had ble been blessed in so many ways that led the angels of God in worship, and, and yet had, there was iniquity that was found within him, and he had fallen so far, and finally we see he is cast into the lake of fire. Let me just say this about hell, because hell needs to be talked about. 
all right? And, and we can't be afraid. We can't be afraid to sugarcoat the, re- the reality of hell because Jesus didn't in his teaching and in his preaching. And I know that there is a tendency today to, to shy away. And, and of course, we never talk about hell, this eternal place of pu- punishment in a sense of, of joy, you know, or in a sense of, hey, those people finally got what they deserve. Of course, when we talk about it, it should always break our hearts. It should always break our hearts. But we should not fear talking about the reality of hell any more than we should be necessarily overly overwhelmed with the blessings of heaven. Listen, hell is called outer darkness. It's called everlasting fire. It is called the lake of fire burning with brimstone. It is called Gehenna. If you're living in Jerusalem at the time uh, when the word Gehenna was used, you were familiar with it because out of one of the southern gates of the old city, the, it was called the Dung Gate. And if you go to Israel with me today, I'll, we'll go through the Dung Gate. It doesn't sound real pretty, but it looks a lot different now. But they would take the city refuge, refuse, excuse me, and they would take it out of the Dung Gate, and then they would have this place where they dumped all the trash, all the refuse, uh, and, and it was constantly smoldering, it was constantly burning, it was filled obviously with flies and maggots, it was just a foul place, it was a wretched place. And so when you use the word Gehenna, I mean it brought clear picture to the Jewish mind at the time. Uh, Mark chapter 9 verse 42 and Isaiah chapter 66, 24 speak specifically of this place. You know, God did not originally create this lake of fire burning with brimstone or this place that we call hell as a place of punishment punishment for humans. Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 says that he created it for the devil and all of his fallen angels. And we are reminded in the book of Ezekiel that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. In addition to that, uh, we see from Old and New Testament that there is some really clear description of this place. It is a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It is a place of eternal physical torment. Um, It is a place of conscious suffering, torment, and anguish. It is a place where there is no repentance. This is not a place that is, is in a sense, a purgatory um, where you can work your way out of it or where other quote-unquote believing family members can pay your way out. You know, so such a sad moment in church history when the Roman Catholic Church introduced the idea of indulgences. It is not... It is not temporary suffering or punishment. Uh, we do not believe the Bible teaches annihilation either. Um, it is eternal suffering. The Bible says in Mark 9:43, it is a place where the fire will never be quenched. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 25:41, "Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire." And Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says it's a place of eternal contempt and shame. It's no shock that 74% of Americans, this is a Pew Research poll, uh, 74% of Americans believe in heaven and only 59% believe in hell. I mean, that's not a shock because hell is not a place. If you could have your druthers and pick one or the other, for sure hell is not a place that you would just want to believe uh, in. I, I do think it's important for us to discuss this 
uh, because maybe tonight you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. This is a good motivation for you to be believing. It's a good motivation for you to be believing. Hey, the grace, the love, and the blessings of God are great motivators as well. Um, and of course, all of that all of that comes from the conviction of sin as the Spirit of God is speaking to our hearts. But it is okay for us to be motivated to put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, to escape eternal punishment. In fact, Jude said in verse 22 about the preaching, on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of fire. I'm not saying to you today that you need to roll into work tomorrow and tell everyone they're going to hell if they don't believe, all right? Or I'm not saying tonight you need to blast it out on email or your social media, but you know there are times where God is going to lead you to say something challenging to somebody. And it may be the very, there was a pastor that was on staff here many years ago, and he's like, man, you know what it was for me? It was like somebody was talking to me about hell, and it woke me up. Man, it woke me up. Like, I came to my senses, and there was a certain fear in my heart. That, that was a place I didn't want to be. And I think that is a sufficient motivation to put your trust and faith in Christ. I think as well, it is a motivation for the believer to worship and to witness. To worship and to witness. We talk about heaven all the time. You have been saved to heaven, but you've also been saved from hell. And I think there's a lot to thank God for. Like, in fact, listen, maybe your day felt like hell today. Maybe you're, man, you know what? Today was just like from hell. That's how, that's how you kind of wrap your day up. That's your postscript for the day. Well, I just want to say to you, thank God you're not going to hell, all right? You have something to thank God for. And then, and then listen, when we think about this place of eternal punishment, it should burden our hearts. It should burden our hearts. Like, like how can we be okay just rolling through our life and not even being concerned about the eternal condition of the souls around us to the extent where we're not even witnessing. I mean, really, if we sincerely do believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that there is a place, a literal place of eternal punishment, it should compel us if we love people. It should compel us if we love people to tell the truth. And then, and then let me just wrap up by saying 10 to 13% of the teaching of Jesus was on eternal punishment. So, so you can look at your own witnessing strategy, and I would just say make sure 10% of it is <laughs> about not going to hell. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from, who, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Man, just circle that, highlight it, take it in, meditate on it. Standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead, who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. So remember I said to you tonight already, beam a seed of Christ, um, that all resurrected believers will stand before, before the second coming. The second judgment is the judgment of nations. We talked about that. Now this is what he sees, this is what John sees. He sees the great white throne of judgment, right? And 
God, I, b- I believe God the Father sitting on the throne. And just in such majesty and power that the whole earth and heaven fade away. We're going to talk about how God wraps this universe up physically like a scroll that is consumed in fire and then he remakes the universe. But we have a picture of this procession before God, right? A picture of this procession before God. Every single individual who has ever lived that rejected the testimony that God had supplied. We're not talking about believers. The great white throne of judgment is not for the believer in Jesus Christ. Remember, we've, we've been ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. We will be observing, but we will not be part of this procession. And it doesn't matter how insignificant you might have been in this life or how significant you were in this life. Maybe, you know, you're a king or a queen, a a person of position and power, and you just are able to get your, your way at any time and in any way you want it, well, that's not the way it's going to roll when you're in heaven, when you're standing before the great white throne of judgment. I mean, you're not going to be able to buy your way out of it. You're not going to be able to have the influence of others, you know, to be able to call on to help you to escape it, because there's only one way to escape the great white throne of judgment, and that is to put your trust and faith in the person of Christ, This is the second resurrection. And so the Bible says that Hades, right, this holding place in the center of the earth, death itself has been fully emptied. There's not a single soul that is escaping this moment. And then in addition to that, the Bible says the sea itself empties itself. What what does that mean? Um, No one really knows what that means in particular. Some people say, well, maybe there was a previous civilization that existed that, that the seas have kind of covered up, or maybe the sea refers to people, or maybe the sea refers to those who have died at sea, um, because remember, the resurrection is going to be a physical resurrection. There will be physical torment in hell, just as there will be physical blessing in heaven, and God is able to reassemble all of the all of the cells and the DNA that our, our physical body was composed of as it's been decaying. And so possibly that's what that means. But there's this huge processional. The books are open. And remember, uh, there are many books that are mentioned in Old Testament and New Testament. We have every deed that's ever been done by every human being that are contained in those books. For sure, the Bible is not saying that it's through our own righteous efforts that we are able to get into heaven. But the truth is this, for those who put their, for those who've rejected Jesus Christ, they will also be judged for the sins that they've committed. And then there will, there will also be levels of punishment in, he- in, in hell. We don't have time to get into that. But as all of these individuals are brought before the great white throne of judgment, this is the moment that Philippians 2.9 is fulfilled. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then the Bible says, finally, in verse 15, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast 
into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. You know, tonight you might be thinking, well, you know, why isn't God more tolerant? God, God should be more tolerant. But the truth is this, that if God were more tolerant from your perspective, that would mean that he condones evil. And our God is a God that does not condone evil. You say, well, wait a minute, a lake of fire with eternal punishment, that, that punishment doesn't, it doesn't fit the crime. And I, and I would say to you, well, it depends on who you compare yourself to, right? Because you may not think that you're deserving as you compare yourself to other people, but when you compare yourself or set your ne yourself next to the holiness of God, that's what, the, that's what this great white throne of judgment conveys, that God is not only righteous and just, but he is absolutely and altogether holy in all of his ways, you say, well, you know, a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. And the truth is this, especially tonight, hell is your choice. Hell is your choice. You can choose to live with God or you can choose to live without God. And in fact, this is what God has done. Because maybe tonight you're thinking, well, if God would just do a little bit more. Well, let me tell you what he's done. He has stood in your path. He has stood in your path and he has said, stop over my dead body. Right? This is the crucified God saying to you, expressing to you how deeply he desires to spend eternity with you. He was crucified on the cross. And so you literally have to step over his dead body on your way to hell in rejection of this beautiful gift that we call salvation that he has supplied to you simply through faith. Listen, where is the path of your life leading tonight? Where is the path of your life leading John, John's gospel, Jesus said this, John 5, 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. And I pray tonight that we have all made the decision to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful tonight, God, for your word and just the richness of this chapter. And we could spend so much time just meditating on it and God allowing it to sink deeply into our hearts and truly it's probably something that we need to do. And we want to thank you tonight. God, for those of us who have believed and we've been delivered to heaven and rescued from hell, we just want to say thank you, God. You are so good to us and so gracious to, to step into our life, to invade our space, to bring to us the illumination, spiritual illumination, so that we could even see while we were walking in the midst of our own darkness. God, that you loved us enough to convict us of our sin and our unrighteousness and the impending judgment that we deserve. God, there's no one like you. You've gone to great lengths, Father, far more than we could ever even imagine, and all of it a beautiful, divine expression of your love for us. And we just do wanna say we look forward to this, this thousand-year golden age. We look forward to the King of kings and the Lord of lords being exalted in that time. And yet we ask, please, that you would help us to exalt him right now, God, in this present moment. 
in our own lives. Tonight as we're just closing in prayer, listen, it would be so wrong tonight not to close without an opportunity for you to trust in Christ. You've heard some hard words tonight and and maybe you've never believed. Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus for the saving of your soul. And, and yet, you know, tonight there's, there's a conviction in your heart. You have to be absolutely perfect without sin to enter into heaven on your own accord. And can you say that tonight? Can you say you've never coveted? Can you say you've never lied? Can you say you've never borne false witness? Can you say that your whole life there's been no other God but the God of the Bible that you've worshipped? None of us can say that. And because God is holy, there is a righteous demand for justice. Tonight you need to believe in Christ. You need to trust in the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross For you, you need to enter into everlasting life. This is what he offers you tonight. He didn't come just to live a a good moral example for you to follow. He came to rescue you, to save you, to deliver you, to bring hope. Where there's been hopelessness, to bring light into your life. And so tonight, you know, God is speaking to you and you need to choose to believe tonight. If this is you, I want to pray for you right where you're sitting. This is the single most important decision you will ever make in your life to respond to God's love and to say yes to Jesus Christ. And so tonight, if this is you, I want to pray for you. You know, you would say, Pastor, I want to believe in Jesus. I want you to raise your hand tonight. Just stretch your hand up high. Let me see who you are. Awesome. Awesome. That is so good. Man, God loves you. The Bible says tonight that all of the angels in heaven rejoice over this soul. Anybody else? You can put your hand down. Listen, maybe tonight as a Christian, you've been, you've been kind of at war with God. And you've been wrestling against him. And tonight, you know, you need to, you need to stop fighting against God. Now, I want to encourage you. There's an opportunity for you tonight to, to, to just lay down your arms. To stop resisting. To concede, to say yes to him. To surrender to him. Christian, if this is you, would you raise your hand tonight? I want to pray for you too. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Put your hands down. Oh God, thank you so much tonight for these precious souls that God, your spirit is touched and we pray that Father, you'd minister to them and just meet them. God, meet them right now in this moment. Right where you all are sitting, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer tonight. I'm going to ask you to follow me in this prayer and God has spoken to you. There's a, a work that he's doing in your life. Maybe tonight, Maybe tonight for the saving of your soul and eternal deliverance. Maybe tonight as a Christian, just, man, you know, you're not going to fight against him anymore. And, and this 
this decision needs to be expressed in prayer to God. It's you, right? It's good to have people pray for you, but you need to pray to God. And you need to trust that as you're looking to Jesus, that he is going to hear you. And God is going to do, God is going to do above and beyond what you could ever imagine. Tonight, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer, all right? You're pouring your heart out to him. And I want to encourage you tonight to pray with, with anticipation. Because as you pray, and as you are leaning into the gospel of Jesus Christ, man, God is going to fulfill his promises in your life. Just follow me in prayer tonight. God, thank you for speaking to me. And tonight I choose to trust. Tonight I choose to believe. I'm trusting in Jesus. And I'm believing that he is the way that he is the truth and that he is the life. And that through faith in him, I now can come to you. Forgive me of my sin and fill me with your spirit and help me to live a life of saying yes to you in Jesus' name.